0: Before we get started with this episode, I just wanted to give a content warning that we will be talking about childhood sexual abuse and suicidal ideation. Welcome to Hooked. I'm Rachel, your guide through the perplexing and sometimes deadly world of internet catfishing. Why do people catfish? And how many lies can they tell before they get caught? Stick around to find out in this week's episode of Hooked. All of our cases are fairly recent, within the last 40 years or so. But catfishing happened long before the internet, or even computers were around to help people promote a false image of themselves. Starting around the 1600s, newspapers contained ads from people looking for love. These had nearly as many names as papers they appeared in—lonely hearts columns or Cupid clubs, matrimonial ads, personal ads, and love brokers. Women and men would describe themselves, their assets, and what they were looking for. Or marriage agencies would do it for them. One woman wrote in 1898, M30, wealthy, lost mother for whom I sacrificed youth, dread a lonely future, seek husband and true companion. Another wrote in 1914, Honest widow, 48, working hard, wants acquaintance of sober, kind-hearted gentleman over 55 with steady city position. A man wrote just below that one, A mechanic, middle-aged, would like to meet a working woman, aged about 46 years, with no encumbrances, particulars in the first letter. No triflers or agents need apply. In 1929, the Detroit Free Press published an article about the columns and described the patrons as falling into one of two categories. Middle-aged people who were overlooked by Cupid, and youths anxious for the responsibilities and joys of married life. The latter of which, they clarified, mostly meant sex. While most people who placed or read these ads just wanted love, there were also quite a few, as the gentleman earlier termed them, triflers. Some triflers were merely long-term annoyances, a person who would correspond with someone for weeks or months, only to meet them and discover at some point that their to-be-sweetheart was not who they said they were in one aspect or another. While these disillusioned couples usually just break up, there were a few who lashed out in a more permanent way, with murder. The first documented Lonely Hearts murder happened in 1917. Augusta Steinbeck met Hermann Neugebauer, For a few months, they exchanged nearly daily letters, until finally Augusta went to Detroit to meet Herman. She wrote to a friend that living in Herman's house with them were Herman's two sisters, one middle-aged and one a teen. After a few weeks, she was never seen again. After an 18-month investigation, Detroit detectives found that Herman Neugebauer was actually a Ford machinist named Helmuth Schmidt. The two sisters that he lived with were his wife and daughter and the Schmidt women seemed unmoved by the knowledge that Helmuth had strangled Augusta in their basement with a clothesline and buried her under their porch. A few years on either side of this event, the main characters of today's story were born. Raymond Martinez Fernandez was born on December 17, 1940, in Hawaii to Spanish parents. Shortly after his birth, the family moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut. This was hardly their final home, though. The Fernandezes moved constantly from one American coast to another. Raymond's father was abusive, and so when Raymond's uncle in Spain offered to house Raymond while he learned the farming trade, Raymond enthusiastically accepted. So 18-year-old Raymond arrived in Spain in 1932. While there, it didn't take long for Raymond to spot an attractive woman and attempt to woo her. Her name was Agnesia Robles Olenazo, but Raymond called her Encarnacion. Two years after he arrived in Spain, 20 years old, Raymond found himself married with a child. And by 1947, there were three children. Three children cost a lot of money, though, money Raymond couldn't make in Spain. He decided he had to go to New York to earn some real money. He planned to be there for a few months, maybe a few years. But while he was there, the Spanish Civil War broke out, and Raymond was apart from his wife and children for a total of 12 years. He returned in 1947 to see one of his sons, who was sick, but that same year he returned to the States for good. While he and Encarnacion would exchange letters and her name was tattooed on his chest, they would never see each other again. 1947 was the first year, as far as we know, that Raymond started lying about his identity— He was an excellent forger of documents, so Raymond easily became Charles Martin, a well-to-do New York businessman. This was the persona he used when writing letters to women he found in Lonely Hearts ads. One of the women he exchanged letters with was Martha Jewel Seabrook. Martha was born on May 5th, 1920, near Pensacola, Florida. Her family of origin, like Raymond's, left much to be desired. Her mother was overbearing, Not only was she constantly telling Martha how worthless she was, she wouldn't let Martha have friends. And so Martha was alone at school when she was teased for her weight. She went through puberty prematurely, and people were not kind about it. In addition to her mother's hovering, Martha would claim that her brother sexually abused her. There's really no reason not to believe her. While it only came out during her trial, this wasn't exactly something people talked about in the 20s and 30s. Young Martha's brother Dudley told her he had learned a new game and wanted to teach her. Many years later, Martha would realize he had raped her. But it wasn't just once. When Martha would ask him to stop, he told her he would kill her if she didn't shut up. Two months after yet another assault, Martha had missed two periods. The 14-year-old didn't know what was happening, but knew that she was producing weird discharge. She would say later, I took a very cold bath, hoping that whatever was wrong with me, I could stop it. I tried to cleanse myself, but from that day forward, I haven't felt physically clean. The cold bath, of course, did nothing about Martha's pregnancy. She was terrified to tell her mother, and she was right to be. When she finally did confess that she was pregnant and the father was her own brother, Mrs. Seabrook didn't believe her. Once Dudley confessed to raping Martha, it was Martha who was punished. Mrs. Seabrook set about trying to induce a miscarriage. They tried hydrotherapy. They tried a mixture of turpentine and sugar, then another drink made up of gunpowder, sugar, and sweet milk. One of these things worked, somehow, but Mrs. Seabrook let Martha know that she had gotten off very lightly, and if she was ever victimized again, Martha would be sent to, quote, a place where bad girls would be locked up. It seems Dudley stopped raping his sister, but he certainly wasn't out of her life. When it came time for Martha's senior prom, she was elated to be asked by a boy in her class. But her mother made her attend the prom with Dudley. After high school, from which Martha graduated in the top 10 of her class, she studied nursing, but was told that her weight would keep her from a career. Now, let's be clear. Martha was overweight, but she carried around 200 pounds on a tall frame. There are plenty of nurses today and throughout history who managed to do their jobs well at that size. But Martha, used to being beaten down, looked for another career path. Around this time, two of her friends had died, and Martha had found herself thinking how strange and oddly inappropriate it was that female bodies were readied for funerals by male undertakers. And so she became an undertaker, tending to the bodies of dead women. She moved to Pensacola for the job, getting her own apartment, but despite her childhood home being within a few miles of the apartment, Martha's mother decided to move into Martha's apartment to keep an eye on her. She did the same when Martha moved to Vallejo, California. Martha had decided to give nursing another try, graduating as an RN in 1941, and got a job at a hospital in California. Unfortunately, she was forced to hand over her $33 a month paycheck to her mom. Martha left the hospital job and quickly jumped from her new job to a different one after she claimed she was sexually assaulted by her boss. Just as she had when Dudley assaulted Martha, Mrs. Seabrook blamed Martha for the assault and Martha tried to kill herself, the first attempts of many over the next few years. After losing her job following the assault, Martha met a Navy man and fell in love. The man wanted to marry her, but Mrs. Seabrook wouldn't allow it. Defeated again, Martha and her mother moved back to Pensacola. The Navy man pursued Martha, though, as well as he could from across the nation. He sent Martha money so she could come back and marry him, but when Mrs. Seabrook found out, she called the man and told him that her daughter was mentally unbalanced and he should forget about her. And it seems he did. Soon after, Martha was sexually assaulted at a party. In 1944, Martha met Alfred Beck. Probably partly to escape from her mother, Martha married Beck in December of that year and soon found herself pregnant. It was during her pregnancy that she learned her husband was already married to another woman, with whom he had four kids. Even if he hadn't been married, Martha said Beck wasn't a good partner, as he had, quote, a roving eye and a zipper problem. She gave birth to their son Anthony amidst a messy divorce. In 1942, Martha was seeing a sailor named Franklin Carmen. They got engaged and a party was arranged for October of 1942, but Carmen never showed. He later wrote to Martha that his ship had sailed unexpectedly, and also, he didn't want to get married anymore. They both wanted to avoid a scandal, so Carmen suggested that Martha claim they had married, then send herself a telegram saying that her sailor husband had been killed in the war. It worked. The newspaper even ran a small story about the poor widow, Martha Beck Carmen. A year later, Martha became pregnant as the result of another rape. Even though the child couldn't possibly have been Carmen's, Martha insisted that it was to save face. While working at a home for disabled children, one of Martha's co-workers filled out a Lonely Hearts ad for Martha as a joke. That joke would result in the deaths of at least three women. Even though Martha hadn't been thrilled to discover that she had been featured in a Lonely Hearts ad, she couldn't deny that getting letters from men was fun. And after a lifetime of sexual abuse, this probably felt like a much safer way to get to know a man. In December 1947, Martha got a letter from a Raymond Charles Martin. He quickly became her favorite, and she, it seemed, was his too. He didn't have a problem with the fact that she had children. She'd had a daughter by then, Willa Dean. In fact, when he sent gifts to Martha, he made sure to include some of the kids, which he signed, From Your New York Daddy. Gross. Within a month of their first letters to one another, Raymond traveled from New York City to Pensacola to visit Martha. Their weekend was described as sex-filled, and when they weren't having sex, Raymond was nice to Martha's kids. When he got back to New York, though, he sent Martha a letter saying that actually he didn't want to continue their relationship. For a second time, Martha tried to kill herself, unsuccessfully. When word of the attempt got back to Raymond, he grudgingly said that he and Martha could try again. She enthusiastically agreed, traveling up to New York where she stayed for a few days. When Raymond said that she could move in with him, Martha went back to Florida to get her kids and returned immediately to New York. But after a week of living with a woman he wasn't really into and two screaming kids, Raymond told Martha that she could stay, but the kids had to go. This is the part of most stories where the parent stands up and says, I could never leave my babies behind. But nothing about Martha's life comes from a storybook. She walked her kids to the Salvation Army and left them there. Later she'd say, at the time I was torn between two loves, the love for my children and my love for Raymond. I weighed the two and knew I had no place to go with the children. Once the apartment was rid of little ones, things went better for Raymond and Martha. But the thing that bothered Martha was that Raymond was still answering Lonely Hearts ads. When Martha asked Raymond why he kept writing to them when he had clearly already found his soulmate in her, Raymond said he liked getting pictures from, quote, these old hags. In his initial letters, Raymond, or rather his persona, Charles Martin, would ask the women about where they lived, their house, and their hobbies, to try and suss out how much money these women might have. In the end, Raymond estimates he exchanged letters with about 50 women. His plan seems to have been to woo these women and steal their money. Whether murder was initially included in the plan isn't known, but more than half of the Lonely Hearts women Raymond met in person exited the relationship with their lives. In general, the plan went like this. Raymond and Martha would claim to be Charles and Martha Martin, a brother and sister. The two would meet a woman in her hometown and take a look at the things of value she had. They'd convince her to liquidate some of the assets and put the cash in a joint bank account with Raymond. But not all of the women made it to this point. One of the first, Agnes Denyer, had $10,000 in the bank, almost $900,000 today. But according to Raymond, she was out for a good time and I didn't like her attitude. So they left Agnes unharmed. Esther Henney was the next target. She was a teacher from Fairfax, Virginia, and on February 28th, 1948, Raymond drove there and married her. Martha came along, Esther moved to New York with the siblings, but it didn't take long for her to suspect that they weren't siblings at all. Quote, they acted too lovingly to be relatives. And also, Martha was an unyielding cockblock. She would not leave Raymond and Esther alone together. Ten days after her marriage to Raymond, Esther found that her engagement and wedding rings, along with her watch, had been pawned. Still, she didn't leave. Raymond was charming, Esther said, but she was afraid of him sometimes. He could get out of control when he was angry. She also suspected the pair had drugged her a few times. Even with the intimidation and drugging, though, Esther wouldn't give Raymond what he asked for, her insurance policy and money from her assets. After hearing rumors around the apartment complex that a woman Raymond had married years before had died mysteriously on their honeymoon, Esther left New York. She lost about $4,000, but unlike the next target, she'd kept her life. Because of those murder rumors around the complex, Raymond and Martha knew they had to get out of New York. And it was just as well. The next person on their list, Myrtle Young, lived in Arkansas. They packed their things, took an extended vacation in Florida and Cuba. Then, in August of 1948, they drove to Arkansas. Myrtle Young was 42, and quite the businesswoman. She owned and ran a hotel and restaurant, but once Raymond and Martha arrived, they convinced her to sell it and start a new life. Myrtle got $6,000 for her businesses. The trio traveled to Chicago, where Raymond set up a joint bank account and the new couple got hitched. 4000 of Myrtle's dollars went into the account, and the rest was used to buy a new car. Once all of this was done, Myrtle was no longer useful to Raymond and Martha. They put Myrtle on a bus back to Arkansas. Myrtle said she didn't feel well, so Raymond gave her some bicarbonate soda. When the bus reached Springfield, Missouri, Myrtle was feeling worse, and was taken to a Little Rock hospital. There, she fell into a coma and died a week later. While these days most people believe Myrtle's drink was spiked, her death was never investigated because she had already been in ill health. Shortly before meeting Raymond, she had suffered a cerebral hemorrhage. After an attempt in North Carolina was a bust, Raymond and Martha went to Vermont to meet Irene LePont. Irene could, perhaps, be called the beginning of the end, at least for Martha. Because before Raymond and Martha met Irene, Martha believed with her whole being that Raymond loved her. He had told her that he just enjoyed manipulating these women and stealing their money. He called them old hags. It was Martha that he was having sex with, even if she never had an orgasm. And yes, Raymond was kind to these women once he met them, but he had to, to lure them in. All the relationships ended quickly, and Martha was still there for Raymond. But Irene was a different case. Raymond seemed to genuinely like her and be attracted to her, and so Martha decided to sabotage the relationship. She wrote Irene a letter, telling her that Raymond was a terrible man and she'd never be happy with him. Unfortunately, Irene brought up the letter to Raymond, who was furious at Martha. They had an explosive fight, and Martha decided to return to Pensacola. She was not welcomed back with open arms. Mrs. Seabrook, the one who had insisted on living on both coasts with her daughter for years, told Martha that she was not welcome in the Seabrook home. Martha was a sinner, Mrs. Seabrook told her, for having premarital sex, and Mrs. Seabrook was trying to forget she ever had a daughter. Luckily for Martha, Raymond had a change of heart. He contacted her in Florida and told her he wanted her to come back. So she did. By early November 1948, Martha was again in New York. It was sometime in the last two months of 1948 that Irene decided she couldn't be with Raymond, Perhaps like most of the other women, she'd noticed that the relationship between her new husband and his alleged sister was definitely not one of siblings. She had even somehow figured out that she was meant to be a murder victim. And yet, part of her farewell letter to Raymond read, Our plans had better be called off. I just can't have faith in you. She closed by saying that she knew they had intended to end her life, but quote, I love you, darn it. Well, darling, so long. On the first day of 1949... Raymond and Martha went to Albany to meet Janet Fay. Janet had been a target from the beginning of the letter-writing scheme. She was over 20 years older than their other targets at 66, but to Raymond, that simply meant she had two extra decades to save money. And save she had, not only did she have a lot of money in the bank, she also wore a large diamond ring when she met the couple. After Raymond had set up the joint bank account, she came back to New York City with them. Because Janet was nearly 30 years older than Martha, who was 29, Martha didn't think she had to worry about Raymond being attracted to Janet. But as it happened, Raymond was very attracted to Janet, and as far as records show, she was one of the only victims that Raymond had sex with multiple times. This sent Martha into an absolute tailspin. Though she was supposed to be Raymond's sister, or perhaps because she was supposed to be, Janet was very put off by how obsessed Martha was with her brother's sex life. Janet told Martha, as soon as he and I are married, you'll not live with us. A few days after she arrived in New York, Janet started to suspect that something was just not right, and Raymond and Martha knew she was suspicious. There are about a half dozen stories about the night the couple decided to kill Janet. She would be their first violent killing, and how and why and who did what depends on when and by whom the story was told in the upcoming months. But here's the bare bones of it. The night of January 4th, the three were playing a game of strip poker. Totally normal to do with your would-be brother and his soon-to-be wife, right? Even stranger, the agreed-upon winner would have Raymond to themselves for the night. According to Martha, she won. The New York apartment was small, certainly not meant for a couple and a third wheel. That night, Raymond had elected to sleep on the couch while the women shared the bed in the bedroom. Raymond went into the bathroom, and when he returned to his couch, he found Janet lying on it, naked. She told him she wanted to have sex with him. He turned her down, stormed into the bedroom, and told Martha to get Janet off the couch and back into her clothing. Janet was still naked when Martha went into the living room. Martha told her, for a woman of your age, you're the hottest bitch I have ever seen. She eventually coaxed Janet into their shared bed, but as Martha was trying to sleep, Janet started panicking. She wanted to know what Raymond was planning to do with her money that he had put in the shared bank account. Martha, annoyed, told her to calm down, and Janet shot back, Do you get paid to make that remark? Eventually, Janet got so worked up that Martha went into the living room and told Raymond to give the woman her money back and put her on a train to Albany. Raymond tried to calm Janet down, but nothing would work. In some versions of the story, this is when Raymond decided to choke Janet to death, but it didn't work. In every version, there is a hammer and a handkerchief, but where the hammer came from, how it ended up in the bedroom, and how it was used isn't agreed upon. In one version, Raymond handed Martha the hammer and told her to hit Janet over the head with it. When Martha hesitated, Raymond said, If you love me, you'll do it. So she did. In another version, when Raymond realized it was too hard to choke Janet with his bare hands, he used the hammer and the handkerchief to make a garrotte. In still another version, it's Martha that does the actual killing. However, Janet was killed. Once the deed was done, they put her body in a steamer trunk and threw the murder tools in the East River. They removed the bloody carpet and cleaned up the scene. The next day, they brought the trunk containing Janet's body to a nearby apartment rented by Raymond's sister, Lena. Later, while pursuing their next victim, Raymond would return to the apartment and bury the body in the backyard of the building, covering the space so seamlessly with concrete that it couldn't even be found when Raymond told the police exactly where to look. Once Janet Fay was out of the picture, Raymond and Martha went to Grand Rapids, Michigan to meet their next mark, Because Delaphine Downing was the final and arguably the worst murder committed by the pair, we know the most about her. When Delaphine, more often known as Della, wrote her first letter to Raymond a few months before they met, she was 31 years old. She had been married to Roland Downing, with whom she had her daughter, two-year-old Raynell. Tragically, Roland was killed when he was hit by a train, and a heartbroken Della said she would never marry again. But she wanted to provide for her daughter, and as Della wrote to Raymond, or Charles, as she knew him, in mid-January, she was terribly lonely over the holidays. She added that she was considering purchasing a new car. She had plenty of room in her two-car garage, even though it held many of her late husband's valuable tools. These were exactly the details Raymond loved to learn. Della had enough expendable cash that she could buy a car outright and a collection of tools? Raymond made the Charles persona out to be a wealthy Manhattanite who loved children. When Raymond asked Della to send a photo of herself and a lock of her hair, she did. It was a mere two weeks later that the Martin siblings arrived in Grand Rapids. They first checked into a hotel on January 23rd, but a few days later, Della invited them to stay at her house. She had five bedrooms, after all. Within a week, Raymond and Della were talking marriage, and in less than two weeks of knowing each other, they were engaged. Next door, Della's neighbors were watching closely. Proof that women have always been into true crime, neighbor Mrs. Sullivan was suspicious of this Charles Martin, telling the police that he just didn't look the part of a wealthy New Yorker. Another neighbor, Evelyn Burt, noticed that Raymond was isolating Della. They took down his license plate and called the police. The county sheriff ran the plates and found that Raymond was wanted in New York. He called the NYPD and told them that he knew where a wanted man was. Because the case went over state lines, the FBI was called, and they said that Raymond had no record and to leave the man alone. The marriage of Charles Martin and Delaphine Downing became official soon after the engagement on February 2nd. At the reception in Della's home, Mrs. Sullivan noticed that Della was rather subdued. Not only did she not seem excited about her marriage, but she didn't even want to talk about how she and Raymond had met. Sullivan believed she was embarrassed at having used a lonely heart's service. Sullivan called Della's former father-in-law, telling him that she was concerned for Raynell's safety. But Della's own family didn't find anything amiss with him. Living in New England, they hadn't been able to attend the shotgun wedding, so Della brought Raymond, Martha, and Raynell to visit them on the East Coast. By the time they got to Della's parents, Raymond was already telling Raynell to call him Daddy. Seeing him do this, Della's parents declared him a fine man. After returning to Michigan, Della began to prepare to move to New York with Raymond and Martha. At Raymond's insistence, she liquidated most of her assets. She sold her home, she sold her land, any valuable items that she hadn't sent ahead to New York, she also sold. With her money safely in a shared bank account, Raymond bought a brand new car in cash. Mrs. Sullivan, who was still keeping an eye on him, wrote down his new license plate number. The new couple and their hanger-on were planning to move to New York by March 1st, but as she watched the house at the end of February, Mrs. Sullivan noticed that while Raymond and Martha were constantly going from the house to the car, packing it for the move, she hadn't seen Della. Evelyn Burt was watching, too. On Monday, February 28th, Mrs. Burt called the police. Because the local sheriff had already learned that Raymond had a record, even if the FBI didn't care, he wasted no time in going to the Downing home and asking Raymond and Martha to come down to the station on March 1st. Meanwhile, two other detectives stayed at the house to investigate. The first thing they noticed was that the new car Raymond had purchased was packed with Della's things. In looking through the things in the car, they found a small suitcase full of Lonely Hearts correspondence and in another suitcase, a 45 automatic pistol. Searching the house, they found no signs of Della or two-year-old Raynell. It wasn't until they reached the basement that they found something— a wet patch of cement in the cellar. While in any other circumstance this could have been chalked up to finishing touches on a house for sale, the circumstances made them examine it more closely. Even without the missing woman, the wet patch was in an odd area. That is, it wasn't in a place where a pipe might have been fixed or an unsightly hole might have been smoothed over. They started to dig. About six inches down, they found Della, or rather her body, wrapped in a blanket with a hole in her forehead. Also buried there was a bloody pillow with a bullet hole in it. The bullet itself was not found. But where was the toddler? At the station, Raymond and Martha had already admitted to causing the death of Della, but they had yet to mention Raynell. According to Raymond, Raynell had not been killed with Della. Raynell had been present when her mother was shot, and then her stepfather and alleged step-aunt had taken her to see a movie. Having lived with these people for a few weeks, Raynell was comfortable enough, but by the next day, she wanted her mom and only her mom. The couple took her for a leisurely drive. That didn't help. They got her a puppy, but it scratched her, so Raymond brought it back to the pet store. Eventually, Martha asked Raymond if it might be best if they, quote, put it down with its mother. So they did, but not as neatly as they had with Della. Martha filled a wash basin with water, then held the little girl upside down by her legs until she drowned. Then she put Raynell into one of her late father's footlockers. Later, Martha said that she had to think of Raynell not as a child or even as a human, but as an obstacle to be removed. Once that was finished, Martha and Raymond went to another movie. This was mere hours before the police arrived at Della's home. At the police station on March 1st, it hadn't taken Martha long to spill at least some of the beans. Enough that the detectives quickly figured out that Della was hardly the first woman who had been victimized by what the media would shortly start calling the Lonely Hearts Killers. It wasn't just what Martha told them, though. In that satchel full of Raymond's correspondence the police had found that day, also inside were blank sheets of stationery belonging to both Janet Fay and the wife of Raymond's who had mysteriously died on their honeymoon, Jane Wilson Thompson. Both of the women's stationery had their handwritten signatures at the bottom of each page, and Janet's also had the word, surprise, written at the top of hers in the same handwriting. Most likely, Raymond had planned to use these to inform Janet's family that she was married and wouldn't be seeing them for a while. Later, police would find out that Raymond had sent many letters as his victims to said victims' families. All letters Raymond wrote, whether they be to his wife in Spain, as Charles Martin to his Lonely Hearts ad conquests, or while pretending to be those conquests, Raymond used a typewriter. Also found with the stationery was Jane Wilson Thompson's will, which left everything to Raymond. Raymond and Martha were interrogated for hours that day, in separate rooms. In Raymond's pockets, the detectives found $4,000 in cash and a list of 17 names and addresses. This list was of Raymond's Lonely Hearts pen pals. Fourteen of the 17 names were checked off, one of them being Janet Faye. Next to the name and location, Raymond had also listed the estimated monetary total of the woman's assets. The existence of this list has put the Lonely Hearts killers down in history as one of the most prolific serial killer couples, as people assumed, and continue to assume, that they murdered each of the 14 women whose names were checked off. That wasn't true, though. The detectives checked. Out of the 14 women, only one of them, Janet, had been killed. Most of them had only exchanged a letter or two with Raymond and barely remembered him. A few of them knew who he was, but had never met him. Why so many names were checked off, then, is unknown. In her interrogation, Martha made herself out to be a victim, a meek and guileless woman whose life had only really begun the day she got Raymond's first letter. And while back then, and even today, the public doesn't enjoy labeling a woman a violent criminal, From the first, the media hated Martha. My guess is that she made them very uncomfortable. She was not the typical 1940s woman. She would testify in court about her childhood abuse. She had worked as an undertaker. She'd had premarital sex, a lot of it, which had resulted in two children that she later abandoned to run off with her fellow murderer. Even today, an overtly sexual woman is given the side eye. Not only that, but Martha was a chain smoker and a facial tick that made her seem like she was smiling at inappropriate moments. And she was fat. The media was absolutely obsessed with the fact that she was fat. In nearly every article, the fact that she was overweight was referenced somehow. She was called Big Martha, the beefy paramour, and described as having a fat moon face. It was also hammered home nearly every time she was mentioned in an article that she was twice divorced. One paper even described her as a hedonistic glutton with a supernatural hunger for food and love. Raymond was certainly not fawned over by the press. He was described as baldish, awkward, with yellow teeth, but Martha was the press's focus. The public opinion, ultimately, was that both people in the couple were guilty of multiple murders, but Martha was the reason the murders had happened in the first place. Why? Because she loved Raymond, and he didn't love her back. Raymond, the press declared, would probably have been satisfied with simply stealing the women's money and abandoning them. But Martha, seeing her husband, the man she loved, nay, was obsessed with, romance and marry and sleep with, and perhaps even grow to like, these women, well, it all built up into a murderous rage. On their third day of interrogation, March 3rd, 1949, Martha and Raymond were asked about the crimes they had committed in New York. Until that list had been discovered in Raymond's pocket, the police thought they had only committed crimes in Michigan. The fact that murders had been committed in two states made this case more complicated. First, the states had to fight over who would try the killers first. Second, there was a big prosecutorial difference between Michigan and New York. New York had the death penalty. Michigan did not. This was written about in almost every article about the case, because even before the killers were apprehended or known about, the government of Michigan had been fighting for months about whether or not capital punishment should be reinstated. Those who were for reinstatement were almost giddy that this case had come up when the debates were going on. Surely two multiple murderers, whose hit list included a toddler, would make the public angry enough to want the Lonely Hearts killers dead. And Martha, at least, also wanted her to be dead, After telling the detectives that she had attempted suicide eight times and thought about it every day, she was obviously placed on suicide watch when not being interviewed. In addition to the feelings that had inspired her attempts before, Martha had learned that in his interviews, Raymond had not only thrown her under the bus, but said that he only married Martha and tolerated her because she knew enough about him to blackmail him, even saying that keeping her around was a necessary evil. He stated over and over that he had no positive feelings toward her, least of all love. He would later take this back in court, but the damage was done. The couple was extradited to New York to be prosecuted for the crimes local to that state. They arrived on March 15, 1949. During the trial in New York, which didn't start until the end of June, the courtroom was standing room only, and the crowd was mostly women. As the trial began and the press summarized the crimes, it became clear that their fat phobia wasn't just focused on Martha. About the killer's victims, one paper wrote, Some victims were plump, others heavier, but in every case, weight was a characteristic common to all of the women who joined the Lonely Hearts Clubs looking for happiness. Was it their plump, generous natures which drove them to look in the periodicals? Or were these women overweight because they tried to satisfy their appetites for affection by stuffing themselves with food? The writer went on to cite the alleged psychology of being obese. Like for real, these women were murdered, can we not mock their weight in death? Aside from her weight, there was something else that didn't endear Martha to the press or the onlookers, her facial tick. Pulling at her cheek more often the more nervous she got, spectators believed that she was smirking at the memories of her dead victims. She also revealed herself to be a liar. As the prosecutor cross-examined her about her multiple marriages, Martha admitted that she had lied about her marital statuses three times throughout her life. The psychologist who examined her pronounced her a pathological liar, and the prosecution were obsessed with getting her to talk about her sex life, both with Raymond and her other partners. The more sexual she looked, the more guilty she would look to the public. At first, Martha wouldn't speak about her sex life beyond admitting her childhood sexual abuse. But eventually she gave in and spilled all the lurid details, which the press churned out to the public as fast as they could. She revealed everything. How her nickname for Raymond's penis was Oscar, how she'd gotten pregnant by him, he told her to abort it, and she did it herself with a crochet needle. How before Raymond, she had considered sex merely a duty because she could never orgasm. The word orgasm being spoken aloud in a 1940s courtroom, and by a woman no less, absolutely scandalized people. But Martha wasn't done. She told the court court how, concerned about her inability to orgasm, the couple had visited a doctor who advised them to try oral sex. If the court had been scandalized by the idea of a woman talking about orgasms, now the same woman was describing oral sex, which was considered abnormal and disgusting back then. Or at least everyone pretended to find it so when in public. Martha never argued that she wasn't guilty of murder. She also made it clear that she did not fear death, while she did say that she didn't want to die by the electric chair, both she and Raymond stated during interviews that they would simply kill themselves before that happened. Martha told the court that since she was young, she had considered suicide almost daily. A death sentence would be a welcome relief. Martha's very last words on the stand were a reiteration of the admission she'd given during her psych evaluation. Quote, My story conflicts with all of them. I've been sitting here lying. I lied in Michigan and the statements that I am telling you now, even though they are the statements I gave to my lawyer, are still lies." When it came Raymond's turn to take the stand, his lawyer tried to argue for insanity. Raymond told the court that before the murders, he had had two traumatic brain injuries. The first happened while he was living in Spain and got typhoid fever, which landed him in the hospital for a month. The second was when he was serving in the armed forces and was on a boat. As he descended into the bowels of the ship, the metal hatch fell onto his head, leaving him with a hairline fracture and a lifetime of constant headaches. The same psychologist who diagnosed Martha as a pathological liar also said that while, yes, the metal hatch hitting Raymond may have caused brain damage, he believed that what affected Raymond's psychology more was PTSD from serving in a war. When he had returned from serving, Raymond couldn't get enough of telling his family, anyone he ran into socially, and especially his cellmates, gruesome stories of the things he'd seen abroad. What was especially telling about this, though, the doctor said, was that none of these stories were true. On August 18, 1949, the jury was sent out to deliberate. They discussed the verdict for 13 hours, adjourned for the day, and spent another 8 hours deliberating the next day, and the next day spent another eight hours deliberating until they had reached a decision with two holdouts. But a death sentence didn't have to be unanimous, and so when Martha and Raymond were pronounced guilty of murder in the first degree, they were also sentenced to death. As the two killers were led out of the room, Martha waved to Raymond. He did not acknowledge her. They were both sent to Sing Sing Prison, and in Martha's case, the woman's ward had to be reopened. Sing Sing hadn't had a female residence since 1944. Both Martha and Raymond were watched by multiple wardens around the clock because both of them had said in no uncertain terms that they would kill themselves before anyone sent them to the electric chair. The date for that was set for August 28th of the following year. Martha, however, was positive that Raymond didn't have her will when it came to suicide. She wrote to her sister from prison, Oh yes, he's brave when it comes to talk and hurting others. He can kill without batting an eyelash. But to hurt himself? He'd never do it. It takes a man to kill himself. He's a sniveling, low-down, double-crossing, lying rat. While he waited for his meeting with Old Sparky, Raymond wrote letters to his wife back in Spain. He had explained to the court that he had committed bigamy only because Spain didn't even offer the option for divorce. In his letters, Raymond called Incarna, my dear wife and beloved. She wrote back, I send you a kiss, which I cannot give you personally. The killer's execution date was moved to March 8, 1951, to save the state a little money. Two other men were to be executed that day. In preparation for his death, Raymond was baptized in his cell. In the 24 hours before the execution, Martha and Raymond submitted two appeals each. All were turned down. Martha's wishes for her final hours were for it to be quiet. In her last letter to her sister, Martha wrote, Chin up, I'll try to blow a fuse. On the day of their execution, Martha and Raymond joined two other men who were to die that day. The men all wore white shirts and black pants. Since a woman hadn't been executed in nearly a decade, Martha just had to wear her own dress. 32 people observed the execution two policemen and 30 reporters. Raymond was killed second to last, and Martha last. The media's fat phobia was present up to and following her death. They wrote that Martha had to go last because she was so very fat. They informed readers that the electric chair was a tight fit. The coupling of Martha and Raymond was really a perfect storm. While Raymond had been abusive and had even killed before he met Martha, Martha had never harmed anyone but herself before she paired up with Raymond. For Raymond, she abandoned her children. She helped fleece women who were looking for love, and she even killed a child to keep up her relationship with him. He had some kind of evil hold on her. The Lonely Hearts killers are known as serial killers. Secondary sources list them as having killed upwards of 12 people, but their true body count was only 3. Janet Fay, Della Downing, and Little Raynell. Even so, Martha and Raymond remain some of the most infamous killers in history. As this podcast shows, they were some of the first, but certainly not the last, to use love to draw in victims. Thanks for checking out Hooked this week. We'll be back next week with a new story. But for right now, you can find me on social media on Twitter at hookedpodcast1, that's the number one at the end, on Instagram at hookedpodcast, and on Facebook at hookedthepodcast. Also, I'd love it if you left me a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like what I'm doing, head on over to patreon.com slash hookedthepod, where you can get access to early episodes and regularly released bonus episodes. Again, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next week.